Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. But I only I go by pictures. Of- Stop and hear what I say. Come on around back Arizona. It's Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. The outdoor living hour here at Rosie on the house. Your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. Beautiful day. Beautiful weather. We're stuck inside a broadcast studio, but that's okay. I'll get over it. I'll adapt. We've got a beautiful tree of the month, and we've got Justin Ronner in from Agriscaping and the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens to talk about the... Uh, Rosie's tree, basically. Yeah, it's Rosie's tree. It's Rosie's tree, the pink trumpet tree. A lot of people call it the Rosie trumpet tree. And he trumpets his voice soft mornings here on Saturday, and glad that everybody can join us here. And we've got a beautiful picture of this tree posted. You send it to us. This is a local tree. This is a local tree. It's right here in Peoria. Uh, it was sent over by Rob. Oh, I'm forgetting his last name right now. I sent it over to you so I wouldn't forget, and here I am forgetting. <laughs> I'm, I'm the king of that. Yeah, there we go. And I, we'll, it's uh, like, well, I sent it to you so I wouldn't have to remember. Now it's your responsibility to remember. Right. I handed it over to you. I handed <laughs> exactly. It over to you. Just like when we plant trees and plant plants, as soon as we plant it in the ground, it's now the responsibility of the, the earth to grow it for us. <laughs> That's right? right. We just sit around and wait for that. I, I stuck it in. You do the rest. Yeah. I guess that's a lot of what we'll be covering today is looking at this as well as looking at irrigation and irrigating your trees. A lot of questions showing up throughout the week as we start shifting temperatures. I and mean, we had a 40-degree a shift in temperature, you know, from last week to this week coming up. So it's, it's very important that we're going to talk about irrigation. And before we get to irrigation, let's, let's talk about this uh, pink trumpet tree a little bit because it's uh, – out of my bathroom window. As you can see my peach trees. And I love this time of year because they've got a beautiful plink bloom for a couple weeks. And they're all gone now. They've already dropped off. But then when I saw this one, I thought, oh, man, I might even be prettier than the peach bloom. I, I agree. I think in terms of its majesty and beauty, uh, it is, uh, it's a top-notch tree. And it, it'll bloom for almost a full month, so it's not just a week or two. You know, this uh, pink trumpet tree will, will bloom Usually starts blooming right about now, you know, uh, beginning of April and, and uh, kind of end of March, beginning of April. And then it'll be blooming almost for the entire month of April. You know, as long as we stay under about 105, you know, that thing will keep growing some <laughs> beautiful blooms. Can you eat it? There's, can you eat it? So there are some teas that people make with it. You know, it's a great question because, you know, I love diving into that, <laughs> right. you know. And so this one's got a lot of uh, medicinal quality, but uh, not one that you're going to just go throwing in a salad on the regular. So. Okay, so, useful tree, and and those medicinal qualities include medicinal qualities include working with your your bowels and uh, reducing inflammation, especially things through your GI tract. You know, just reducing some of that inflammation, which a lot of you might have as as symptoms to to other things. Uh, and so it's it's an important piece of of a good health puzzle if you're trying to grow your own health right in your garden. Okay, very good. And is that something? comes from the bloom does it come from the bark does it come from the leaf is that something you can utilize year round or do you have to wait for the bloom 
Well, it's uh, it's usually a combination. When they make the teas, they'll combo the leaf. So it'll be a, a leaf, a ground-up leaf, ground-up flower, as well as some of the root that are often in these uh, tea bags and little tea uh, extracts that they often will make out of it. And so you've got some good beneficial value in all parts of that tree. But it is, again, kind of more on the medicinal side, not your traditional edible side. If you did throw it in a salad, the pink blooms will have a little bit of a bitter taste to them. And so maybe not any more bitter than some of that lettuce you guys are trying to eat right now. (laughs) (laughs) And how how big does this tree get? How much room do I need in my yard? So this one grows a little more upright than it does, you know, round, but it's still going to be a good 30-foot tall tree. I mean, the one that I sent you, 30-foot tall, about 20-foot wide. Uh, beautiful uh, self, kind of self-forming canopy, you know, with a, a good almost pyramidal kind of look to it for the most part. But if you do trim it at about the eight-foot mark, it will round out a lot more. So if you do train it as a more uh, specimen-type tree, get a little more multi-branching lower down on the bottom of the tree as you first start planting this thing. Now, one of the challenges with this one is going to be finding the tree, which I know some of you, if you look in this picture up, it, it's the... Uh, I'll have to spell this out for you because I really don't know how to say a lot of these uh, <laughs> these words. I know the common words more than more than I know the others, but it's T A B E B U I A, so Tabebuia rosea. That's w- the one that we're talking about right now. It is more of a subtropical or South American kind of tree. Num- number of them are coming to the states here from Caribbean, and so this is a tree that doesn't like the cold. But loves the heat. So you don't have to worry about the heat. A lot of people think, oh, you can't grow this one here in Phoenix. But like we showed you, that picture right here in Peoria. And that's, uh, I would consider that a hot part of town. Not a really cool part of town. <laughs> uh, and it's a beautiful tree. Beautiful specimen tree. But it is on a south, fully exposed space. And what we would call that a B microclimate or a C microclimate. Which gets some morning shade and gets full afternoon sun. We're trying to keep it heated and warm is the most important thing for this particular tree. You're not going to want to shade this tree. This thing needs that full exposure and the warmth, especially through the wintertime. Now, what happens when it's done blooming? What will this tree look like in a couple weeks? Well, what it'll do, it'll start putting out some bean pods. And uh, it's a longer bean pod. It's a heavier bean pod. And I like heavier bean pods because they're not flying over to my neighbor's house. They're not flying into a pool. You know, they pretty much drop directly below the tree. And what they'll do, and then it'll start leafing out more. Because it's kind of the, if people are uh, familiar with the red bud tree. So if you're from, if you've moved here from other parts of the country, the red bud's a really popular tree. It puts out a ton of beautiful blooms. And then it puts out its leaves. So similar to your peach tree, you probably had the same experience. Blooms, then then leaves. So same thing this guy's doing is basically putting out the blooms, and then it's going to bring out the leaves. And it's a guy, it's got a nice, almost an ash tree, small leaf ash tree kind of look. Beautiful, beautiful tree all on its own. And it then it, it's deciduous, so wintertime comes, it's going to drop all its foliage and then start the bloom cycle again in the spring. Right, and it doesn't fully defoliate. It's not as much of a fully defoliator, but it will bl- lose a lot of its uh, leaf, uh, similar to what you find with a lot of mesquite trees. We're looking out our windows right now. You see some of these uh, uh, Palo Verde trees, and they've lost a lot of their leaves right now too. They're kind of, you know, and that's, that's a little bit what it kind of does in, uh, in the wintertime as well, to lose some leaf. It really just puts out much smaller leaf, and then it'll grow out the bigger leaves after the blooms. And what kind of water does this tree uh, demand? 
Well, it's it's a I would say from a desert perspective, it's a heavy watering tree. But when you really take into consideration the rain coming off your roof and you take into consideration, you know, that that flowing through your yard, if you can channel that, this tree doesn't need much more than what's channeled off your roof. If you channel it right, you you well it right, you know, you'll get a this tree doesn't need a whole lot more than that. And if you do need to add it in, it's going to have about, about the same amount of, of water requirement as does a, an ash tree. But it'll be more frequent because it's got a more shallow rooting system because it's more of a tropical-type tree or a neotropical tree rather than a deep, deep rooting system like some of these, these other uh, ash trees. And when you say you're going to have a hard time finding it, it's just not something that's popular in the nurseries right now? Well, I would say there's more demand than supply. It's okay. simple as that. And uh, the nurseries that are willing to carry it are going to be fewer. Um, but it does exist. It does show up in some of the bigger nurseries. And even some of the smaller tropical nurseries, a lot of those guys will have it as well. They'll bring them in because it's just such a beautiful tree. And if you know your stuff, if you're learning from here on Rosie on the House, if you're here with the Outdoor Hour, you're going to learn enough good information that you'll be able to feel like an expert and be able to apply that to your own garden and be successful with it. And how long is the lifespan of this tree? Because I know you'd, you'd mentioned ash a few times, and I've heard – a couple people talking that you know ash isn't really a legacy tree because it only has about a twenty to thirty year lifespan. It's not something that's going to be like an oak that you know could could span generations, and your grandkids could be trimming it later. Yeah, it 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 would be. Uh, it's a little shorter lived than those ashes, but I've seen some and some specimen trees that are definitely a lot older than that. I mean, same with we find every now and then an ash tree that's an incredibly old, a hundred year old ash tree and. <laughs> Everyone's protecting it, and it's got its own, you know, nonprofit organization that <laughs> runs it, and all those kind of things. But for for this type of tree, I would give it a, a good twenty to twenty five year lifespan. Look at that as its its life and its longevity for your garden, uh, which is certainly longer than most people own their homes here in Arizona. So that's true, no no <laughs> doubt about that. And on those shorter lived trees, you've, uh, and if you like to look, if you have the room, it's one of those that you could stagger planting like plant this one and then plant the next one in 10 years and that way you know you're con you rotating them as they grow kind of like you know the, the peach trees are much shorter lived than the citrus and that's what i've done with them and the yard is i'll stagger them planting every five years that way when the first one that i've planted is done i can rip it out and replant but i've got these other trees that will continue to produce until this one's matured a few years and is providing that produce yeah and this one's probably more if you replant one you know every decade or decade and a half then that's more of the timeline if you're going to want to do that succession planting and keeping that beauty and putting another one in maybe once a decade you throw another one in the garden and then it kind of shifts around and it, and it's got some good wood value as well i mean the wood itself has a, has a good some good quality to it uh, I've heard some people that love to carve with this type of wood, so it's got some aftermarket, I guess you could say, value as you cut a tree like that down. Doesn't its its best quality is not its wood chip, but it is also something because it is a bean producing tree. It's got some nitrogen fixation that actually helps, so it's a good nurse tree for other plants. So if you want to grow some things uh, in your front or backyard, and you want to grow some sub canopy stuff that needs a little bit of a filtered shade, this is a great tree for stuff like that. As well as the leaf drop it has some good nitrogen building. For the soil, so there is a lot of alternative value to it, other than just its beauty as a tree. If you'd like to join the conversation, one triple eight seven six seven four three four eight, one triple eight Rosie for you, or you can send text questions to four one one 
888-900-9923. You could also send an email to info at rosieonthehouse.com if you need to snap a picture of plant or insect identification. You can send it there. It's Rosie on the House. Do you know why you never see hippos hiding in trees? Because they're good at it. <laughs> I'd take a pretty big trumpet tree to hide a hippo. Yeah, that would be tough. All right, so we've covered our tree of the month, the pink trumpet tree. And it's, it's also called the rosy, the rosy tree? The rosy trumpet tree. Rosy trumpet yeah. tree. Because it's rosy pink. The rosy color, rosy pink. That's rosy pink. We usually don't see rosy wearing pink, but that's a, it's a. <laughs> I think you'd look good in pink. You know, real men wear pink. Is that what I've heard growing up? Stick, or is that just they, a new thing. Stick to the tree. They have. Uh, <laughs> they have tough enough to wear pink days at the rodeo. Sometimes there you go. There we go. A lot of that. You know, it's more the cancer awareness kind of stuff. Often with that, and I, and I love that. I think great things to support in these trees in your garden. Great support to bring a lot of eyes to your garden if you want that. Uh, a lot of compliments come from trees like this. Let's shift gears to irrigation now because it is you were. I, Sometimes I have a hard time. Did you say that on air? Or did we talk about that off the break? <laughs> Just about the extreme swing in temperature that we're going through right now, which is going to have a pretty drastic swing on our watering practices. That's right. I mean, even towards the middle and the end of next week, I mean, we're going to be pushing triple digits already. And uh, that's a pretty And you far say from- already, this is like one of the coolest marches on record in, in Arizona. Very true, and and our and our average temperature for this time of year is about uh, for high is around eighty five. Okay, and so just to give you an idea, it's like we went from crazy lows. I mean, we were thirty five degrees, you know, at our place earlier this week, and and then we're going to be going to a high of in the high nineties next week, and so that huge shift puts a lot of strain on all of your plants. I mean, it's, it's just going to do that. They're going to be waking up to, wait, you know, plants going, what's going on? I thought we were still semi-winter, you know, but now we're shifting straight to summer. And that's, you know, welcome to Arizona. We don't have much uh, springtime. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we go from that, winter to summer, you know. And and as summer's coming in, what, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that we're going to have to do irrigation-wise. But how do you know uh, the right amount for the right tree? Or the right bush, or the right plant, or the right vegetable. Well, what I'd recommend right now, it, it, everybody's got different soil conditions. There's a lot of factors going into how much should I water, how long should I water, uh, you know, your emitter types, all those types of things. So let me give you a rule that's going to work for all of you, that you can go out today and really figure it out for yourself. And what you want to do is you're going for depth and then a frequency. So if I'm growing my vegetable plants, I want the water depth to get to 12 inches down. And then I'm going to repeat that frequency as often as I need to so that once the top inch dries, I water it again. And so that's for my vegetables to have about a 12 to 18 inch, you know, root depth. And so that's for that level. When I'm going for my bush level of stuff, I'm going to be going for bushes. I'm going to water them down to about two feet every time I water. And I don't want to water again until the top inch, inch and a half is dry. This is just a general rule, but it's going to help you kind of get things calibrated, and then you can work from that point. And then for your trees, right now, we want to water to a depth of three feet, and we don't want to water again until the top two inches are likely dry. 
And what we're doing is we're trying to train it for the summer months so that these roots start digging deeper and going wider so that we have a lot less need for water. But we're getting it to the depth that then forces that deeper rooting effect to start occurring for you. Now, if you've done a really good job planting the tree and you've got a nice bed of mulch around it, we're not talking the two inches of mulch. We're talking the two inches of ground soil yes the soil beneath that mulch because if you got i mean some people i know have four feet of of mulch <laughs> above, above some of their root zones which isn't bad or good but it can cause issues just different different challenges you know climbing you know you don't even have to pick the fruit you know you don't have to climb a ladder you can just climb up your mulch pile to get to your fruit but you know those type of things can cause other challenges but you're exactly right we're looking below that loose layer we're going to go for the top inch to two inches Make sure that's dry before I water again because we don't want to overwater. That's another challenge that most people have often here in Arizona, especially if they've got really clay soil. They're going to water too often, and they end up rotting their roots. Root rot is a major challenge here in Arizona when it comes to killing off a tree. And you can kill off a tree in just a matter of weeks by overwatering it, especially in the heat of the summer. And what's aggravating is overwater and underwater to the, it looks the same on the tree. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. If you overwater and it starts to rot, then those those leaves will wilt, but they'll wilt a little different. They'll wilt um, and they start turning color. Whereas if it's wilting because it doesn't have enough water, it's just going to droop but keep its color. Okay. And so that's going to be a difference. That's it's the, a subtle that's shift. A telltale sign. Telltale sign. Am I getting root rot? You know, is it shriveling and turning color or is it just wilting, just kind of drooping down and keeping its color? That'll be your indicators on which which direction your plant might be going. And when you're talking getting water down to three feet, I mean, how is, is there an app for that that tells you, all right, you're at three feet, shut the water off? Yeah, it'd be nice if we could just tap on the tree and say, hey, are we are we deep enough yet? You know, but you know, it's more about a probe. So do, using uh, soil probes, and these are probes that are usually like a piece of rebar, like a number three rebar. And you get a four foot piece of that, you bend the top six inches, and you basically created yourself your own probe, and you can. As if it's been recently watered, so whatever time your system already says to water your stuff, water it, wait about an hour, and then you use that probe, and you just put your own little bit of body weight on it, and it should slide into the soil, and it will stop at the point at which the water has not penetrated sufficient. And so it'll just stop at that point. So to get to three feet, you can mark it on that, that stick, and it should go down to the three-foot level without... You know, if you're going through a good soil spot, obviously, if you hit a root, just kind of reconfigure and you can keep pushing it down in there. It should get to that three foot level with relative ease, just your own weight of your body. And I bought a pretty nice uh, fiberglass tree probe from uh, Fisher's Tools in Tempe a couple years ago. And I mean, that has changed my entire watering practices completely. And you just go around and clunk, clunk, and then over here, it's like, whoop, like, holy cow. Like that one worked. <laughs> Hi, this is Bobby Serafin, General Manager of Mission Hardwood Floor Company. Happy Easter from Rosie on the House. one 767 That's one 888 rosie for you if you'd like to join the conversation. We've covered our tree of the month, the rosy pink trumpet tree. We've talked about irrigation a little bit. And we've got Justin Ronner, Justin Ronner in from Agriscaping and the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens. Michael, welcome to the conversation. How may we help you? Uh, yeah, I just have a just a quick question um, regarding my lantanas. Um, how far 
um, should I cut those back? Because they're getting kind of out of hand right now. Well, lantana is one that you can actually trim all the way to the ground, and they'll still come okay. back. Um, it really just depends on the look you want for the next three weeks. Okay. And so yeah, they're you, really beautiful right now. The blooms are really, really colorful. So uh, just they're getting just kind of too out of hand. So what I would recommend is that you trim it back about six inches further back than where you want it to end up growing this summer. And if you do that, then you'll be able to keep a lot of those blooms, most likely, and you can kind of thin things out a little bit and keep some of that natural look if that's the look that you'd like to keep. Because if you, if you trim it all the way back, obviously you're losing all the blooms, so you don't have to sacrifice that much. You can still preserve a lot of that flower, but then try to tame it just a little bit so that your summer growth isn't going to overtake you. Okay, excellent. And can I just get one more question? And thank you for taking my call, by the way. Um, with uh, grass watering, this is my first year in the house, but I've got a fairly good sized lawn in the back. And um, what would you recommend as watering times and uh, lengths for the sprinklers in the back? They're just three inch pop ups. So my guess is, so if they're just three-inch pop-ups, you've got a pretty tight lawn. Is that right? You've got a really, really fine lawn. Keep it really tight? Yes, yes. So with that, I mean, you're going to want to get the depth down at least six inches each time you water. And then the frequency of that is going to be determined by how quick that your, your soil drains. So I can't tell you exactly the time that you're going to need to put to make that work or the frequency, but I can let you know that you're, you does need to get down at least six inches for you and then the frequency is the top half inch drying out before you then water it again the the other way to tell with your grass and how frequent you water it is that go out and walk on it so just don't water it for a while and then as you walk on it if if your footsteps hold their form and it leaves a footprint it's time to water again and that's your indicator for grass especially these nice tight-knit lawns but if it bounces back it doesn't need watering yet it's only when it starts to hold that impression, that's your indicator that it really needs a good deep soak again. And to try to train that lawn so it doesn't need as much water as often, we want it to try to drive that depth from even 6 inches down to 8 inches in terms of depth. And then uh, I would let it grow and keep your grass during the summer months as we start moving into summer. I like to let it, let it uh, flush out just a little bit more, not get too tight. want to keep it about 2 inches. My ideal is 3 inches. To reduce the amount of water, I'm going to have to water through the summer months and just keep it keep it nice and tidy from a three-inch standpoint, but certainly no less than two inches on my growth side. Okay, okay. perfect. Can I throw one Thank thing you. in? Thank- you bet. Uh, Justin, I, I've been in my house 35 years, and Mike, I want you to listen to this. Um, and I've had this Tiflon for all those years. About 15 years ago, I core aerated. And I couldn't believe the water reduction it took. So I make a habit of, of core aerating about every two to three years, and it makes a huge difference. Yep, absolutely does. And especially out here, if you got a lot of clay soils and it gets really compacted, we want to help drive those roots a lot deeper, and they're just a lot happier when you don't have to water them as much because then the water actually gets to the roots and it doesn't just drain off because a lot of our spray water systems, another thing to consider is, is looking at the type of spray watering you've got. I like a slower watering of my, of my grass, large droplet, slow kind of watering with what they call MP rotators or rotator types rather than just your traditional flood sprays because they will water a little bigger droplets over a longer period of time, but it, it's much more efficient. And so you get a lot more 
a lot less evaporation, a lot more getting to your actual grass and helping drive that water deeper. Gypsum's a good thing to also mix in when you're when you after you do that aerating, put a little bit of gypsum in that soil, helps drive uh break up that clay, helps those roots grow a lot deeper. It's wonderful stuff. And <clears throat> explain what a core aerator is. If somebody's never done that before, so core aerator, it's basically, <laughs> yeah, it, sometimes we call it you plug in, you're plugging your lawn. So it's, it, it drives basically a, a little kind of knife into the ground and it pops out a hole about, about a quarter, about, a, about the size of a quarter in diameter. And it'll punch out a little cylinder of soil. And so it's going to punch that soil chunk out of the soil about two to three inches down. And that's basically what a core aerator is doing. And then you can scrape up all those plugs and throw them in your composter or get those chucked out of there. And then you'll, I like to fill that back in with a little bit of gypsum, a little bit of good fine mulch or even some sand, depending on what my final level I want to do. I know on our, our golf courses, we often put it's just gypsum and sand that we'll do on the fill and especially on our, our putting greens to make sure that they can be tightly uh trimmed down to that tight level for a greens level type grass but for my thicker stuff i like using a little bit more mulchy stuff things that can add some nutrient to the soil over a long period of time and when you say it pops out a two to three inch uh you know plug out of the soil that's on a healthy lawn if yeah. you are trying to start a lawn or revitalize one and it's been sitting there a few years and it's hard clay that aerator is just going to bounce across the top. Yes, it does. You have to add a little weight, you know, right on the thing just to get it to hold that thing down so it can actually plug in the ground. And this is one of these gas-powered ones that we're talking about. There's also handheld ones that you can get where you can actually plug them by hand. It has about five spikes across, and you that can step on exhausting. it. That sounds exhausting. Or a good workout. You know, you may be able to skip the gym that day you know, or that week, depending on how long it takes you. And the gas aerators, they have some of them will have a plastic wheel on it that you can fill with water to actually add the weight to it. Yes. And if you've already got your irrigation system installed, you know, it's not a bad to to run it, you know, 10 minutes the day before. You obviously don't want to go out there right after you water and it's all muddy. But give it a good soak to loosen up that soil before you go out there and do your coring and come back with your gypsum and sand. Yeah, and a good indicator if you if you if you need some good core aeration is that the water's running away running off of your lawn. It's pooling up in places. If it's pooling up anywhere, you need to aerate that lawn. I mean, that's that's a really good indicator. And that's that's important especially here in Arizona. We've got to get those roots to drive as deep as we can and to really train them to 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 be able to operate and grow off of the types of rains we get, which are very infrequent. But, you know, as we found this this winter and spring, it's like, oh, they were more frequent. I, we, had, we had to stop job sites more often this year than I think I've had in 20 years. So Now, when Michael, his original question was about a lantana, and I, I like the look of lantana. I think they're a very nice ground cover. But you had made a statement that made me think they weren't maybe high on your list. Not high on my list. I, I'm right now. I'm shifting a lot more and helping a lot of clients shift to more of a productive landscape, so they can have that beautiful garden, but eat it too, or have some utility to it. You know, because I think we're all seeing the writing on the wall that something's coming in terms of a shift in economic conditions. Uh, a lot of things. I mean, if you listened to the show just before just before our show, you, you would have heard a lot of that too. That hey, we know that there's going to be a shift happening. We're not willing to necessarily admit it, but. Moving to more productivity in your garden space is going to make sure that you've got a beautiful garden, and it gives you more reason to keep growing it. And so I like to shift to things that, yeah, 
you know, beautiful but tasty. And so you don't eat lantana. Is what I do I'm not taking. eat lantana. Do not <laughs> eat lantana. Please no. What would you like? Like a sweet potato. Uh, sweet potato vines, vine. those actually produce a sweet potato. Now, it's going to be more of a white, almost russet type of flavor, but a lot of those quote, ornamental sweet potatoes actually do produce a sweet potato. And if, if you go down to Africa, uh, they actually use sweet potato greens as a normal green in the summertime. And so there are a good number of sweet potato types uh, as well as the ornamental sweet potato types that have a good edible utility. And you can feed them to cows, sheep, goats. You know, There's a lot of things that we feed them to. Uh, they love them. I mean, my sheep will get out of their pen, and the first place they go is my front yard to eat my sweet potato vines. That's what they do. And uh, they have not died in the years <laughs> that they've been eating my sweet potato vines. So. And they do extremely well in our desert. They do, especially if you get them a good enough water kind of condition. I love putting them in a space where rainwater loves to fall off. And a lot of people have challenges when the rainwater comes off the roof in the summertime, and it, it tears up their soil, and it floods away. Uh, putting some sweet potato vine, great ground cover, that's a great way to mitigate that as an issue as well as produce something that is of productive and potentially lasting value because they'll regrow themselves every year from that same spot. And if we got a warm winter and you got a good sunny spot, that thing will continue to grow and still look pretty all through the winter as well. So, Well, when we get back, we're going to talk about ground control because there is an extremely moist uh, spring that we've had so far. You <clears throat> I don't really call it in the desert winter. I mean, it's it's kind of you know light light springish, late fallish. We we never really have a full winter, but we've had an extremely wet one. Our reservoirs are completely full, but that is bringing a lot of. I mean, I've had to every weekend. I can usually go like once every two months. Worry about weeds. To keep it under control, I'm having to go every weekend right now. So we control tactics, and then we've uh, we've got one. This is kind of like the you can yes, you could plant all year long, but if you're going to get something in the ground, this is kind of the last time you really want to be outside messing with digging and trenching and getting the irrigation. So we'll talk about uh, some weed control and some planting techniques here as we wrap up the Outdoor Living Hour with Justin Ronner of Agriscaping. A gigantic tree A ginormous tree A humongous tree For all the world to see Yeah, to see And a beautiful Arizona Saturday morning to you all. Thank you for spending it with us here at Rosie on the House, our Outdoor Living Hour. We have our Final segment, I want to know, what do you do for weed control? You'd mentioned your sheep uh, and goats. I mean, very good. But the one interesting thing about those, they usually eat everything you don't want them to eat first before they then go eat the weed that you want them to. <laughs> yeah, when it comes to our sheep and goats, we got to keep them in a, in a pasture kind of format. You know, they can eat anything that's in that space, <laughs> and that's, that's about it. But when, when it comes to weed control in the rest of my yard, uh, there's a couple of options. I mean, I've been trying to steer more and more away from a lot of the chemical treatment stuff in order to mitigate weeds, but that comes with its own set of challenges. Uh, but it does come with an opportunity for a nice uh, fitness program for yourself <laughs> and, and your kids. 
but it, when, in all seriousness, if you if you manage it well, you manage your water well. If you manage the thickness of your rock, now one of the main things I see most often in yards that have a lot of weeds is they just didn't get enough rock laid down to start with. You want at least two inches of loose rock if you want to mitigate your weed issues. Now, over time, those things that rock settles into the soil. And so even if you had two to three inches of rock when you first got your house or first got your landscape installed, a few years later, that's going to all settle in and you're going to start getting weeds again because it's got ground to grow in. It's closer to the surface. Whereas the, prior to that, you know, when you got three inches of rock or three inches of mulch, if you're going with more of the mulch look, you don't have enough room. It's like the seed has to go down so far into the through the rock down to find some soil that's worth growing in. And once it grows, it's got to really use a lot of its energy before it finds any sun to get up to the very top. And by the time it gets there, it's so spindly, it's not survivable. And so it gets burned up once the sun starts hitting. So they're kind of self-mitigating when you got your landscape really set up right to start with. Now, if you don't got that and you've got a bunch of weeds showing up right now, one of my favorite things to do, as long as there's less than four leaves on, on the little weed, is I'll go get a, a flamethrower, literally a flamethrower, and I'll actually do flame weeding. And that does a lot of wonderful things for your garden because the flame will also um, destroy the, the seed that might have blown in from the neighbor's houses and other things. So you're, you're, you're creating a more organic way to, to kill off the weed seeds that might have shown up as well as you're burning off that, that leaf that was there. And then that decay, that little burned plant basically sifts through the rock or your mulch and it becomes something more useful to your plant life. So that's one of my favorite things. Now, if they're bigger than four leaves, that flame method just isn't going to work. They're going to survive it, and they're going to grow or, back. Or you have to stand there a while and burn it till it yes, burns until up. It takes a lot of propane to do that. Yep, little burnt crisp or whatever <laughs> down on the ground. But the the way another way is a, a hula hoe is a tool, you know, or a stir up hoe. Sometimes they'll call it that. And what it, that does is it'll get underneath your rock layer, underneath your mulch layer, and it'll cut the base of that root. And then you're able to just rake up all that stuff, and that's a way to get rid of a lot of that mass. Uh, I mean, because if you go out there and just spray everything with an herbicide, a general herbicide, or a, uh, while these things are growing, and you've got big weeds, those weeds don't just disappear. They're going to shrink, and all that mass is still there on top of your rocks. It's actually going to build soil. So you got to really rake that stuff out even after it's dead. Otherwise, you're just reducing the amount of level you've got uh, the depth of your rock and, and mulch and creating essentially more soil which means the next time the next season the weeds are going to grow even easier in your yard and so that's important now i have a really old school method i have a sickle oh there you go and those are big weeds and in my orchard because i don't <laughs> spray anything in the orchard you know like you were talking about you getting away from chemicals now where the other side of the property where it's just weeds that come up and it says we we don't have any rock it's just it's flat dirt now i'll spray out there to keep that all all under control but i don't want to put any in the orchard so when i if it gets too big then i go to the bush hog with the tractor but i'll even with the tractor and the irrigation around the tree drip you know i don't want to get too close and mess up the irrigation but you want to talk about a workout but an effective tool that sickle's a pretty amazing uh, design and style. I mean, it. Once you get it and you, you're holding it and you, you you play with it for a couple hours and you figure it out, man, you could you can really do some damage. And then I just leave the weeds there. I let them dry up, burn up, and you know, kind of top compost by itself. And then the roots are in the ground, so they've kind of loosened the soil and just let it die. 
Well, hopefully you're doing that before the seed pods have fully formed and you're not just kicking a bunch of seeds around <laughs> and creating more workout for you later, unless it's a workout you love. I mean, it sounds like R- Romy's been working on his obliques, you know, he's working <laughs> on his core. And so that's a great way to go. Maybe one thing we could share with you all is that depending on the size of your property, your tool size just needs to increase. What size, what size of property are you working with there, Romy? Five acres. Five acres. So five acres, a sickle, a bush hog, you know, driving something around, very appropriate. Now, if I'm in an HOA environment and I've got <laughs> less than a quarter acre, that hula hose probably about as big as you're going to want to go. And, and so you're going to size up relative but, to the need that you got. Right? But, but you get some good looks when you're walking around with a sickle. Oh, yes. That, you, that you has get some, some attention-drawing factor to it. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And if you've got a nice big hood that you can put on at the same time, you know, we got – Death is here. <laughs> Only for the weeds, though, of That's course. That's right. That's right. Just just the unwanted plants. Now, what kind of uh, water would they do they take away from the tree? I've always thought, well, you know, that a weed, there couldn't be that much. But is there something to that? Do they – will they draw water off? Because I know like a lawn, you know, it, it – if you think you've got a tree in a lawn and you're watering the lawn that the tree's getting enough, that, that lawn never lets that root get to that tree. Will weeds ever get bad enough that they could keep you from watering a tree properly? So they're taking a lot of the surface water. The biggest thing that they're taking away is food because that's where all the feeder roots are is in that surface, that top 8 to 12 inches. And so that's going to be the important thing for that. They're going to take nutrients more than water, but they do take some. Justin Ronner, Agriscaping, agriscaping.com. Spell that for us real quick. A-G-R-I-S-C-A-P-I-N-G.com.